You're listening to the podcast series for Women Vision SC 2020, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Linda O'Brien. We'll hear interviews from some remarkable women from across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. Join us now with one of the 11 Women of Vision SC. This week, we talk with Dr. Sinise Chris. As a Traveler's Rest City Councilwoman and an assistant professor at Furman, she bridges the world of government and academia. Welcome, Shanice Chris. In addition to teaching, doing research, evaluations at Furman, you're also very involved in your community, Traveler's Rest in Greenville. How do you approach your work with these different areas? For me, when I was 27, I went to a church retreat and we were really praying and meditating on what is the direction of our lives. And what I saw there is that I fulfill my purpose through three areas. That's government, media, and academia. And so as I went forth from there and as I continue on now, I just make sure that I'm working in one of those spheres or when I'm really firing on all cylinders, all three. Well, for many people, just one of those would be a full-time effort. How do you get it all done? A good calendar (laughs) and a very supportive husband. You were the first African-American woman to be elected to the Traveler's Rest City Council. Tell us about the challenges you faced. Honestly, I don't think I faced challenges based upon my gender or my race for Traveler's Rest. It was just a very beautiful process. I got to meet so many people going door to door. It was funny because some people would ask me questions as if I'm running for Congress, and I would have to tell them, we don't vote on those issues on the city level. But I got to meet so many business people on Main Street, on the White Horse Road in Traveler's Rest. And so for me, it just felt like it was the time for me to be part of city council. A newspaper article about you as a teenager mentioned that you earned straight A's from first grade through 12th grade, with the exception of one B. Second grade handwriting. (laughs) So how did that happen? Oh, I guess I just need to improve my handwriting (laughs) in second grade. But seriously, getting straight A's for all those years, you must be very determined. Well, I got straight A's elementary and middle, and then I maintained over 4.0 in high school. So I did get some B's in that process. But yes, I'm very determined. I remember middle school, I would wake up at 4 a.m. and get out of my bed and start doing homework. I just really was captivated by the material, and I wanted to make sure that I did a good job. How, how did you get that spirit? What, what caused it? Was it something in your family growing up? That is a good question. I often think about this because I think some things we're born with and some things are through our environment and then you have a combination of both. But me getting up at 4 a.m., that was just something internal. That's just something I felt like I needed to do. The writer of this article said that you were almost too good to be true, citing your academics, but also your work with youth and government at a young age. This is your high school years. Right. uh, Going to meet President Clinton, um, national affairs. So government was part of your your young life. Ever since elementary school, government's been a part of my life because I did student government in elementary school. I was South Carolina Junior Beta Club president in middle school. That was the first time they had a statewide election and I won that. And then in high school, I did student government and like you said, South Carolina Youth and Government. 
One of the issues, especially the series is about women, mm -hmm. is getting women to run for office and to get involved in the political process. Mm -hmm. Many times people shy away from that. What drew you to this field? I have always felt the way that I serve others is through being a voice for them. I've seen that all through my life. Even when I think about when I was in second grade, my mom did a wonderful job telling me the importance of my body and space and to make sure that I didn't let anybody violate me. So in second grade, somebody in my class told me what their uncle was doing to them and I knew it wasn't right. And I told my mom who told the principal and that night he was arrested. So then I saw the power of being a voice for others. And your mother was a school counselor? Yes. Father a principal? Yes. So you came from that world of education, and that has also been a thread. It definitely has. When I was growing up, I had no idea I would actually be a college professor, and my husband's a fourth grade teacher, and so education runs deep in our family today still. You come from a family of educators, You've shown that you really have a drive. What caused that? Was it from your parents? Was it something else? It was a combination of an internal drive, but also my parents cultivated it. Specifically, starting at elementary school, whenever I came home and felt like I couldn't do something, my mom would do a special cheer for me. I grew up with a cheer elementary school, middle school, high school, to let me know that I could do it. What do you mean a cheer? The cheer was, I know you can do it. You know you can do it. All you got to do is put your mind to it. Get up, get with it, really suck it to them. Get up, get with it, really suck it to them. So every time I was down, that's what I heard. And you still probably think about it a lot now. I do, and now I do that cheer for my mom and my daughter. <laughs> Was there one teacher who influenced you who made a difference in your life? I have to say there's three teachers, elementary, middle, and high school. Elementary was Miss Marchbanks. She showed me what it means to truly be compassionate and care for others. In middle school, I had Mrs. Leslie. We had to memorize 106 prepositions. So it made <laughs> me realize I have to hold myself to a high standard. And then in high school, I had Mr. Humbert. He was a speech and debate coach. And he steered me to do student congress. And that's where I really flourished. And I became really passionate about politics and policies and what we can do on a national scale. And this passion that you have for these topics, how does that translate with your students? All the time. In class, I'm teaching about national issues, state level and local. So whenever we talk about any public health issue, I always bring in what are the ways that politics makes a difference? What are the policies that we should do? One assignment is even having them create a health care system for the United States where they actually, it's a model or it's something they write about? They write about it. So we studied in detail. We look at what we've done in the U.S. and we look at what other countries do and they come up with their own plan. You received your master's and PhD from Harvard and your dissertation title was Media, Health Communications and the Cancer Risk Factors of Tobacco and Obesity. 
still big topics today, right? especially with concern about vaping and tobacco. What is the role of media, and why haven't we as a society learned better lessons over the years? The media plays a huge role. One thing I think about is that we're not allowed to advertise traditional cigarettes on television, but yet vaping is something that people can advertise on television. They think when people see that it potentially maybe it's safe or that everybody's doing it, which we know a lot of people are vaping, but I think we should think about ways to reduce the exposure of vaping. So, but from a public policy point of view, what should be done so that it doesn't get to this point where it's almost a crisis? Right now, I think we really have to look at the flavors of vaping because when you think of vaping, it's two reasons or two groups of people who use it. It's the traditional smoker who wants to go to vaping that might be considered safer. But then you have a whole new group of users. That's the youth, middle school, high school, college. And they think it's exciting because of the flavors. And this is a group that they know they would never smoke cigarettes, but they start to vape. And now as you see in the news, the long issues, and we don't know what other health consequences will come because many times it takes years to see the true effects. And what is the role of government on all of this? The government has to do regulations similarly to how we did with traditional cigarettes. That means that we don't have advertising in certain spaces. It means that we will put a tax specifically on that product. Those are the things that we have to do and education. During your Peace Corps years, you served as a producer and host for a national television program for the Ministry of Health in Guyana, South America. How did that experience inform your current work? When I joined the Peace Corps, I had no idea that I would have a talk show, but what I realized is that people need information. Sometimes we walk around not realizing that what we know could help others or that other people haven't learned it yet. And so when I was there, I would have teenagers as co-hosts with me. We really focused on the youth and we would talk about topics. We would have people call in and ask questions. We have people text in. And when I'd be walking around in Georgetown, Guyana, people would say, we appreciate what you shared. I told my uncle not to do that anymore. So you actually were seeing results from this communication effort. Yes. And how do you think that informs then what you're doing today in terms of healthcare? How can you be a voice for others? Well, that's a good question, what I do today. I feel as far as communication, just in class, I'm telling people the information they need to know and that I want them to share that with others. But anytime I have an opportunity to share health information with the media, I am happy to do so. And so that's the area that I would love to cultivate more. And do you think that does improve health outcomes, the information? It definitely improves health outcomes. So I like to use the social ecological model. And it says that for anything to work, for people to have behavior change with a certain health outcome, it has to be education on the individual level and then interpersonal friends and family. Then you have to look at people's workplaces or schools, then community level. On the community level includes media, and then lastly, policy. So for any person to be able to make an effective behavior change, they really need support on all levels, which includes education, communication, and media. 
It strikes me that now with the internet, we have more information than ever before at a person's fingertips. You can Google whatever uh, health issue you might be worried about. But is it the right kind of information? There are a lot of different types of information and it's not all correct. One thing I really focus on is media literacy, which means you have to look at the source. Is it connected with the university? Is it connected with the Centers for Disease Control? So that's one thing I really emphasize. And if it is news coverage, looking at the background of if it's liberal leading, if it's conservative leaning, and really making an assessment off of that. So I say people can look at what they want, but they need to really look at the source. Was there a turning point that most contributed to your success? I feel there were so many turning points. I guess when I think about just my introduction into public health, it was unexpected because I was a senior in college and I was trying to figure out what am I gonna do next with my life. So I literally just went to the website of Emory University and looked at all the schools and I saw the School of Public Health, and I said, what is this? And when I looked at it, I was captivated. And that did it. That did it. And what would you say your biggest workplace challenge is today? I think one challenge is making sure that you communicate effectively. So I may have something I'd like to do, but I have to make sure that I really explain the rationale behind it, the justifications, and then move forward communication. I realized over and over, you might say, this is the best thing, but if you don't back it up and explain it clearly, you're not gonna have people go along with you. And that goes along with the question about leadership. How do you define leadership? Well, first of all, with leadership, there's so many definitions of it, but what I personally have decided to do is servant leadership. So I am willing to be out there and I want to be out there with other people working together I also like and think it's important to look at data. And so whenever I make a decision, I listen to what people say and I look at the data and I try to make the best decision from that. The other issue that many women face is work-life balance. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you conquer that issue. Just some practical things for the work-life balance is that on Saturday, my family, we don't do any work. We spend time together. And that is something that I appreciate that we protect that time. Also, I work a lot, but I do what I love. So it doesn't even feel like work. And so that's one thing that's very helpful for me. And what would your advice be for a young woman today? So many things that I wanna tell a young woman. One thing that I would tell a young woman is to really follow her passions. The world will tell you what success looks like but truly success looks differently for different people. I heard this, uh, this illustration. Someone said, don't get in golden handcuffs, which means that you're doing everything that you're supposed to do and going on this path, but you're chained to a job that you don't like. So I have decided to add to the illustration and say, make sure you have your golden wings so you can fly and do exactly what you need to do. And how would you define your overriding life vision? When I think about my life vision, I'm really concerned with equity, which is different than equality. Equality means that everybody gets the same thing. Equity means that people may need differing amounts of opportunities to get to the same place. 
And the other part of my life vision is that I'm really focused on instilling confidence and making sure people feel empowered. Go back to the equity and equality again. What do you see with equity? How do you make sure that individuals receive what they need? Well, a lot of times I think about it in terms of health equity. And so if I look at health outcomes, you can see a vast difference just by somebody's zip code. And so practical things like, is there a grocery store in the area? Do people have access to after-school tutoring? Is it safe to go outside and exercise? And so when I think of equity, I think of it individually, but I also think about it for communities. And what are the responsibilities for communities to try to improve that equity equation? When I think about on the community level, I think it's important that you have partnerships. You can have things that the government can focus on, also private investors, private corporations, and nonprofits. And I really think it takes coalitions and people actively working together to see a change on the neighborhood and community level. So it's not just the government oh, or no. one particular aspect of the community, it's all these groups coming together. Right, including the community members. We have to make sure that they're active part of the process because they know what they need. 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. Why is it important for women to vote today or historically? I feel compelled every time there's an election that I should vote because so many people fought for me to vote. I think about the women's movement. I think about the civil rights movement. In the 1960s, my grandmother would go door to door to ask people to vote. That was in the midst of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. That was a very tumultuous time. It was a scary time. And when I think about what she did and when I think about what so many other people did, I am gonna vote. And so I think about it for women's rights to vote and I also think about what it means as a black woman to vote. Tell me more about that. What does it mean as a black woman to vote? Well, women had the opportunity to vote 100 years ago, but black women did not. And so that's why I look at the intersections of our lives and how, when I think about how many people fought for me to vote, I think every woman of every race should vote. And by voting, and you are in, in government, are you exercising your voice? Are you making a difference? There are so many people who say, well, it doesn't matter anyway, it's just one vote. A lot of people, when they think about voting, they think about only national elections. But there's statewide voting and there's local voting. And I have seen people win and lose by three votes. So in my opinion, every vote matters. Why was your grandmother so interested in voting rights at that point? You know what, I didn't get a chance to ask her that. I just heard my dad share that story. I've been looking into my ancestry lately, and when you were talking about public health, I just learned that my great-grandfather started the first African-American hospital in Mississippi. And I think about how he went door to door. He also started one of the first HMOs in the country. And he had all the black people in the area, they would pay 50 cents to join this insurance company. And the reason he wanted to start that hospital is because he was tired of seeing black women having their babies in the cotton fields. And so when I think about all the struggles that people have gone through, 
I feel it's my imperative to exercise my, my right to vote. Your right to vote and also your focus on education. And public health. All of it comes together. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Shanice Chris. You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a podcast production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on KnowItAll and SCETV.org. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer and Becca Turner is production assistant. Tyora Moody is web manager. Bobby Kennedy is director of special projects. For SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us.